Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the latest issue of the Oliver's Insights podcast. This week, we're going to have a look at problems in the US banking system, which of course have caused renewed turbulence in share markets globally. The US share market perhaps has been hardest hit. It had a nice start to the year, rallying strongly into the end of January, early February, but has since fallen to be back down 20% from its January high of last year, or still above its October low, at which point it was down 25% from its all-time high. Non-US shares have held up somewhat better. The Eurozone share market down 7% from its record high, and Australian shares down 9% or so, but bouncing around a bit from its record high. But obviously, these markets are vulnerable to moves in US shares. This uh, podcast takes a look at the key worries around US banks, what it means in terms of inflation, central banks and recession risk, and all of course what it means for investors. I guess the big question is, are we going to see systemic problems in the US banking system? Of course, as you've held recently, several US regional banks have collapsed or closed in recent days. Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, which had a deposit base from tech and some crypto customers, collapsed after running into trouble as deposits were withdrawn as their customers were facing tough financial conditions and needed the cash. Silvergate Capital and Signature Bank, which were crypto-friendly banks, also closed after they were made vulnerable after the collapse of FTX crypto exchange last year. These closures have led to concerns they may reflect the start of broader problems in the US banking system. This is quite possible as Fed rate hiking cycles historically by tightening financial conditions invariably trigger financial stresses. There is in fact a long history of this going back to the 1960s, uh, but of course most would remember the tech wreck and the GFC, which were preceded by Fed monetary tightening. Of course, that banks exposed to tech and crypto, either for deposits or lending, are in trouble is not surprising as both sectors benefited from the pandemic and easy money, but have been hard hit by reopening and rate hikes. And it's made worse where banks have concentrated investments in long-term bonds, like SVB did, which have fallen in value. So if they have to sell those bonds, it's at a loss and could create liquidity problems. And it's worth noting the $620 billion of unrealized losses on securities at US banks. Of course, it's only a problem if they have to sell them when people take their money out. But at this stage, it's too early to know if the problems that these lenders reflect isolated problems in the tech and crypto sectors that they're exposed to, made worst by undiversified deposit bases and concentrated holdings of bonds that have fallen in value or are a sign of border problems in the US financial system. Fortunately, well, there's a big difference in what's happening today compared to the GFC. At the time of the GFC, US banks made loans to so-called subprime borrowers, low-quality borrowers, um, who struggled to make their payments. Those loans were initially packaged up into securities. A lot of gearing was put around them, and they were sold all around the world in vehicles with funny names like CDOs. And of course, when those the lenders or the borrowers started to struggle with their payments as interest rates went up, it led to mass defaults and big losses on those products, causing issues all around the world and the GFC, which we all know about. This situation is very different. Problems that these banks 
mainly, or at least partly reflected, problems in the deposit boats that had to take their money away, and that triggered problems. So very different, in fact, investing in high-risk stuff like low subprime loans. Many of them were investing in US government bonds, which ultimately will be safe if they hold that money to maturity. But if they have to sell prematurely, then it's a problem. So that's one point, very different to the GFC. Secondly, US authorities have moved very quickly to guarantee deposits beyond the 250,000, usually covered by deposit insurance. And the Fed has unveiled a term funding facility that enables banks to borrow cheaply from the Fed in order to avoid selling their bonds at a loss if the depositors want their money back. This should help the risk of runs on banks and avoid fire sale of bonds. And it should also help minimize bigger problems for companies that had deposits at these banks. For example, if the tech customers of SVB couldn't get their money out, then you'd be looking at layoffs and those companies not paying their creditors, which would be a worse sign for the economy. So I don't buy the story that here we go, bailing out uh, the big end of town again. Just bear in mind that companies have to pay their workers and their creditors. If we don't support them in times like this, then we end up with problems for everybody. Following another point, following the GFC, large US banks now have to maintain large capital buffers. Um, these are what you call systemically important banks, too big to fail banks. They have less risky exposures, which is mandated, or at least, or in particular, less concentrated asset exposures. And they have more diverse deposit bases than, say, regional banks. Well, up until 2018, any US bank with assets above 50 billion had to be subject to the post-GFC. Tougher laws and restrictions from 2018 that was changed to any bank above $250 billion in asset bases. So consequently, smaller banks were able to take on somewhat greater risks than was the case up until 2018. But nevertheless, the large US banks um, should be in far better shape. It should also be remembered that US regional bank failures are common. The US has a lot of regional banks. In fact, there are eight of them failing in the period 2018 to 2020. Although I should point out that those failures in terms of their asset bases were much smaller than the bank's currently running into trouble. And finally, in relation to Australian banks, they are required post the GFC to maintain much stronger capital buffers. You may remember the focus on making sure Australian banks were unquestionably strong and they have tougher restrictions in terms of what they can invest in. In fact, APRA has in recent years held the line on that front, which has been good. They also have very diverse deposit bases, so are less at risk of suddenly a massive depositors in a particular area or industry suddenly withdrawing their money, unlike US regional banks. And they won't have as much exposure to vulnerable tech and crypto sectors. And Australian bank deposits are implicitly, if not explicitly, protected. But of course, it is worth bearing in mind that Australian banks are vulnerable to defaults by Australian home borrowers, particularly if the property market falls precipitously. And this may be why the Australian banking stocks have been hit lately in the last few days. Part of reflects concerns that, well, if the US is going to slide into recession, then maybe that will adversely affect the Australian economy and therefore increase the risk of defaults by Australian home borrowers. I should point out that many banks stress test their situation against their capital, and many of them are actually quite sound until you get really big declines in property values. So far, we haven't seen that, but it's certainly a risk. However, it will take a while to determine the full impact of I guess the key point from all of this is that there are a bunch of reasons as to why we may not see worst case scenarios, but the risks are still high and it will take a while to determine the full impact and for the dust to settle. And either way, banks are likely to see a tougher environment ahead as growth slows and higher rates cause more financial stress for borrowers. It probably also means even tighter lending conditions for tech and crypto and for illiquid businesses like private equity and commercial property. And it's a sign that Fed tightening has got traction. Which brings me to the next big issue. What about inflation? As we noted earlier, past financial crises in the US have often resulted in an end 
to Fed tightening cycles. At this point, it is not clear we're seeing a full-blown crisis or not, although I'd have to say the risks are very high and inflation is a bit of a barrier in terms of how much central banks can do. But there's a bunch of reasons um, to suggest that it may not be as much of a barrier as many think. Firstly, if US growth slows, then it's quite likely inflation will be under a lot of downwards pressure. Even putting that aside, if you look at inflation around the world, in the US and Canada, it looked to have peaked around mid last year. Uh, in Europe, it looks to have peaked in the latter part of last year. Inflation, we think it probably peaked in the December quarter. Supply bottlenecks have improved, freight costs have fallen, and slowing demand will reduce demand side inflation. And of course, we're seeing easing in labour market conditions starting. Labor market conditions are still tight, but they're starting to move in an easing direction, which will take pressure off wages growth. All of those things suggest that we may have seen the worst on inflation and the trend will be down. Now, of course, if that is the case, in other words, we're right and inflation does come down, then it will start to take a lot of pressure off central banks. It's also worth noting that if the financial problems in the US do trigger weaker growth in the US, it's almost inevitable that we'll put more downwards pressure on US inflation, again, freeing up central banks to respond more forcefully. So I guess the question is, where are central banks right now? I think the bottom line is that all of them may be forced to respond to some degree to the problems we're now seeing. Right around the world, banks have exposure on their portfolios to unrealized losses on bonds, and that may cause some issues for some banks. So we may have to see some liquidity measures put in place. If we look at central banks case by case, looking at the major ones, the ECB is lagging, likely has further to go in terms of interest rate hikes, but I think the US problems may cause it to slow down. The Bank of Canada looks to have peaked in terms of its official cash rate at 4.5%. The Fed has been signaling more hikes ahead, particularly if US data remains strong. In fact, it's recently been talking about stepping up the pace again of rate hikes to 0.5%. I reckon the chance of that now occurring is quite low, given what's happening in the US banking system. And so they're more likely to stick to a 0.25% hike in the week ahead. But there's a strong case, and I think there's a strong chance that the Fed will actually leave rates on hold, particularly if banking stresses remain high over the course of the next week. So in terms of the Reserve Bank, in fact, if you look at the US, Historically, whenever the US two-year bond yield falls below the Fed funds rate, which it has in the last couple of days, it has often been a signal that the Fed has finished tightening. Time will tell on that one, but the point is we think the Fed is getting close to the top. Finally, in terms of the RBA, it's been signaling you know, a bit more to go in terms of rate hikes, more hikes ahead, or at least it moved to the singular in reference to that in the last meeting. Um, but it's also become less hawkish and has opened the door to a pause if data shows further cooling in the economy and slowing inflation. With total household debt servicing costs pushing to record levels, our view is that the RBA should and will soon pause. And US financial problems add to the case for a pause by the RBA, hopefully at its April meeting. So I guess, what is the risk of recession? History tells us that this will be critical in terms of what share markets do. Bear markets in the US and Australian shares have invariably been associated with often deep US recessions. While the risk of recession has receded in Europe, it remains high in the US with various leading indicators, including inverted yield curves, warning of a high risk of recession in the next six to 12 months. Problems in the US financial system simply add to that risk. However, if the Fed soon stops tightening, as we think it should, a US recession could still be averted or it could be mild, which would limit further downside in US shares. In Australia, the risk of recession is high. It's probably still just a little bit below 50%. And our base case is that it will be avoided thanks to strong business investment, Chinese reopening and providing the RBA soon stops hiking and US financial contagion is limited, but it is a risk worth keeping an eye on. So what should all this mean for investors? We do see shares being stronger on a one-year view as inflation falls, taking pressure off central banks and hopefully enabling economies to avoid a deep recession. However, 
Right now, shares are at risk of more downside until some of the issues around the US financial system, inflation, recession, and short-term interest rates are resolved. So this volatility, this tough patch we've got in shares, I suspect has a little bit further to go in the short term. And you know, a lot of that will relate to what happens with US banks. There are several implications from all of this for investors. Firstly, I think unlike last year, having exposure to bonds or government bonds will provide a bit more diversification or protection this time around. Last year, when inflation rose, bonds fell in value as did shares. Whereas we've seen lately, particularly last week, that bond yields have actually declined, which increases the value of bonds, partly at least offsetting the decline in the value of shares in terms of investors' portfolios. And the big difference between now and a year ago is that bond yields are now quite high, whereas a year ago they were very low, so the risk gap for them to fall, which of course means capital gains on those bonds. Second point is that non-US shares are likely to outperform US shares are they, as they are trading on lower price-to-earnings multiples and have lower exposure to the tech sector. This includes the Australian share market. Now, given this highly fraud short-term environment, for short-term investors, you could argue it's a time to be cautious, particularly if those investors feel they have skill in timing the market. However, for most investors, I think while times like these can be stressful, superannuation members, and as I say, most investors, the best approach, I think, is to stick to basic investment principles. These things are worth keeping in mind, and I've got seven of them, and I've gone through them regularly in the course of the volatility we've seen over the course of the last year. The first point is that share market pullbacks are quite normal. They're not unusual. They're not rare. They're actually quite normal. The volatility in share markets is the price we pay for the higher long-term returns they provide compared to, say, cash and bonds. Um, in other words, you want the higher returns. Obviously, the volatility is the price you pay for that. Secondly, it's very hard to time market moves. Often people think they can, and it's always obvious in hindsight, but I think it's very difficult, and the history of this suggests that it's very difficult. So the key is to stick to an appropriate long-term investment strategy. Thirdly, it's worth bearing in mind that selling shares after a fall simply locks in a loss. Prior to that, it's just a paper loss and you're fully exposed to the market, which means that when the market eventually recovers, as history tells us it will, then you'll recoup those losses. But if you sell with the hope of getting back in later, then you lock in that loss and there's a good chance you won't get in in time again to recover that loss. Fourthly, share pullbacks and shares provide opportunities for investors to invest in the market more cheaply just like Woolworths, Aldi and Coles having a sale. You can buy things more cheaply. Shares invariably bottom when investors are maximum bearish. And sixthly, Australian shares still offer attractive income flow versus bank deposits. And finally, to avoid getting thrown off a long-term strategy, it's best to turn down all the noise around negative news flow. So I hope that's been of use. Until we meet again, adios. To keep up to date with Dr. Oliver in the Simplifying Investing podcast series, be sure to subscribe to your favourite streaming platform.